He asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Has anyone here ever heard of the Pareto Principle? Pareto Principle, you might know it by a more common name, the 80-20 rule. It's named after an Italian economist and sociologist named Wilfredo Pareto, but this man, he showed that 80% of all the land in Italy was owned by only 20% of the people. So the Pareto Principle is this idea that 80% of outcomes is driven by or caused by 20% of causes. More broadly, a majority of outcomes like a large number, large percentage of outcomes, is driven by a small minority, a small percentage of causes. So some examples. So if if you're in sales, 80% of sales come from 20% of your clients. See some people in sales nodding. Yeah, that's true. Computer programming, apparently 80% of errors come from 20% of the code. And 80% of software is written in 20% of the total time. Right, so you finish 80% of the entire project in 20% of the total time, meaning that last 20% takes you four times longer than everything else. In healthcare, 80% of the costs come from 20% of the patients. The opposite seems like it's often sometimes true. I don't know if these are true or not. You might agree or disagree with these, but 20% of your wardrobe is worn 80% of the time. Is that right? Maybe. 20% of the apps on your phone get 80% of all the usage. Everybody's got like a bunch of apps on your phone that you never use. How about this one? 20% of foods cause 80% of weight gain. Just cut out those 20% of foods out of your life, you'll be fine. People often also talk about the Pareto principle even applying to churches. 
but not in a good way. Listen to how one pastor describes this phenomenon in churches. He says this, How many of us have seen large churches with thousands of members who never come? And hundreds of members who do come, but seeming not to really care much about God. In any church, there will be very many nice people who live moral lives, but then there will be some who seem especially to love the Lord. They will usually stand out from all the rest. They will seem different from the rest of the church. What has happened in our churches when people who really live like Christians are the ones who seem unusual, even compared to other church members? The 20%. Right? So some people say in churches, 80% of the work in every church is done by 20% of the members. 80% of all the giving, the financial support of the church, is done by 20% of the members. Now we have to ask, is this a good thing? Is this just the way that it's meant to be? Like, the church is just like every other institution of the world, where 80% of what happens or is accomplished in the church is done by a very small minority of its members? I think most of us would agree that it's not a good thing. And one answer, I believe, that we have to fight against the Pareto principle, this 80-20 rule, in our own churches is biblical church polity. Biblical church polity. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, polity is just a way to describe how a church is governed or ordered or structured. How does the church make decisions? And for the past six months, as I mentioned, the church council is working hard to draft a new set of bylaws that we believe more faithfully conforms to the kind of church polity that is established in the Bible. And I think us doing so will be one of the best ways that we can fight against this tendency for a minority of members to accomplish most of the work in the church. And today I'm going to begin a sermon series that talks about, or related to our new bylaws, that talks about three things specifically that we built into our bylaws in order to fight against this tendency. The first one is meaningful church membership. That's what we're talking about this morning. Secondly, we're going to talk about in two weeks, is church discipleship and discipline. And then lastly, we're going to talk about church leadership and the two offices of church leadership that are prescribed in the Bible, which is the office of elders and deacons. And we believe that these three things, meaningful membership, the proper exercise of discipleship and discipline in the church, as well as the proper oversight of the church and elders and deacons, will lead to a church that does not fall prey to the 80-20 rule or the Pareto principle. And so please join me in prayer as we begin this series on meaningful church membership. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this morning. As Toby prayed, we're just so grateful for all the many things that you provide. Oftentimes we take the simple things of life for granted. And this week was just a reminder of the tremendous, abundant blessings that you've given us in our lives. And again, the reminder that we have, that we, we need one another that this Christian life is not meant to be lived on our own. And I pray that the many power outages and things like that would be a reminder, Lord, that in our spiritual lives, the power, the energy, vitality is not something that we're just supposed to conjure up on our own, but something that we encourage and challenge one another toward, and that you've given us this local body, this church, to help one another toward that end. We pray that we would be able, you would open our eyes through the Spirit in the Scriptures to see your plan for how churches are to be ordered and run 
for our good as well as for your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, before I begin, I would just like to acknowledge that a lot of my thinking on these ideas about church polity and how churches should operate, local church, church membership, is heavily influenced by this ministry called Nine Marks and an individual named Jonathan Lehman. Uh, I encourage you, if you're very interested in church polity, I would definitely encourage you to read more of their works. Uh, They have a ton of resources related to these ideas of how churches should be run and how to operate healthy, biblical, God-honoring churches. Well, the question that I want to address this morning is very simple. Can you be a Christian and not be an active member of a local church? Can you be a Christian and not be an active member member of a local church. Maybe you've heard someone say something like this. Maybe you've thought this yourself. You know what? I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm really not into organized religion. And so, yeah, church, you know, I'll go every once in a while, but it's not really the most important thing in my faith. That's more my relationship with Jesus. Is this a biblical valid perspective to have? Another question, is the church just another voluntary association like, you know, the PTA or the Junior League or a neighborhood association, American Legion, a club that you belong to because you share the same interests as some other people? Another way of asking this question, I think, is do you know any mature Christians? Like, do you have people that you look up to in your life, mature people in the faith that you know of? And are these people active members of churches? So can you be a Christian and not be an active member of a local church? So my argument, what I'm trying to convince you this morning, my contention is that it's almost impossible to obey Jesus' commands and all the commands of the apostles in the New Testament if you're not an active, vital member of a biblical, gospel-preaching church. And this morning we'll look at two reasons why I believe that to be true. First, church membership is biblical. It's what Jesus commands. Very simple. Jesus commands in the Bible to be members of a church. And secondly, church membership is the primary context of Christian discipleship. Membership within a local church is the primary context that we have for followers of Jesus on the path to discipleship that Jesus calls everyone to. So let's dig in. First of all, church membership is biblical. So when I say that church members, membership is biblical, there's like not a single verse in the Bible that I could point to that says, thou shalt be a member of a church. Like that's not present. In fact, there are some who would argue that church membership is like a human invention. It's extra biblical, meaning because there's no command to be a member of a church, this idea of being a member of a church is just something that we as humans have developed over time that it's a good idea. It's a helpful practice but it's not necessary. However, I would argue that none of the authors of the New Testament conceive of a follower of Jesus who is not a member of a local church. All, not all, most of the letters in the New Testament are written to members of local churches. And even those that aren't are meant to be circulated among groups of individual churches. But most importantly, we want to see, is this what Jesus taught? Is this what Jesus taught us about the local church? And you might find this surprising, but do you know how many times Jesus uses the word that we translate church in the New Testament? 
You can throw out any guesses. How many times does he talk about the church? Four? Quite low? No other guesses? It's pretty close. It's three. Jesus uses the word church three times on two separate occasions. So one time he uses it once, and one time he uses it twice. One time in Matthew 16, our passage that was read this morning, and he uses it twice in Matthew 18. So I think we should pay particular attention because this is the primary teaching that Jesus gives us when talking about the local church in these two passages that we have this morning that we're going to look at. And as we look at these passages, Matthew 16 will introduce for us three questions that will be answered in Matthew 18. Okay, so we're looking at Matthew 16 first. And Matthew 16 is going to give us three questions that Matthew 18 will help us to answer. So let's dig in. I'm going to read for us Matthew 16 again, verses 13 to 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Why do people, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father's in heaven. If you've been with us in the series of the Gospel of Mark, this should sound very familiar because we have the exact same scenario in the Gospel of Mark. And after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ in the Gospel of Mark, what happens? Jesus says, um, I am going to die and three days later be resurrected. And then he gives the disciples the call to discipleship. Now you are to lay down your life, take up your cross and follow after me. Here, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus uses that as the opportunity to teach about the church. What does he say? I tell you, you are Peter. This is Jesus' words. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. I'm sorry, yeah. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So the first question, what is the rock that Jesus refers to here? People disagree about this. One option is, is it Peter himself? Is Peter the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church? You might not know this, but Peter's Greek name is Cephas, and Cephas means the rock. So it could be like a pun that Jesus is making. Peter, you are this rock, and on you... I'm going to build my church. That's one option. Not surprisingly, it's an option that Catholic brothers and sisters take usually, that Peter is this rock. Or is it Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ that is the rock that the church will be built on? All right, so that's the first question. We're going to save that to Matthew 18 to answer, but just keep that in mind. But another important thing to note in our verses here is that verse 18 and verse 19 are not unrelated. So in verse 18, Jesus says that he's going to build his church. Jesus is the one building his church. He's going to build it on this rock that we're going to find out what the identity of and that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And in the following verse, verse 19, Jesus gives us a picture of what it looks like for his church to be built and for the gates of hell to not prevail against it. He says, he gives Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven and which suggests some sort of authority, and he gives the authority to bind and loose on earth as a visible representation for what is truly bound and loosed in heaven. Now, does anybody know what that means? 
what are the keys of the kingdom and what does it mean to bind and to loose? Second question, or second group of questions. So first, what is this rock? What is this speaking of keys of the kingdom? What is binding? What is loosing? What is Jesus talking about here? And lastly, number three, how will the church then prevail against the gates of hell? How will the church accomplish what Jesus says will happen as he builds his church? So I think it can sometimes feel like we as Christians are stemming the tide. Like we're holding the dam of things like secularism, materialism, moral relativism, sexual redefinition, whatever moral and cultural religious issues that are debated in our day. Sometimes it feels like Christians were just like trying our best to hold everything back. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus actually says the very opposite. Did you notice that? He says the gates of hell will not prevail against the advancement of his kingdom. Gates. Gates are defensive. Christ's kingdom is advancing. We are an offensive force. And Jesus promises that his kingdom will ultimately prevail. And we want to ask, how does that happen then? So three questions to recap. Number one, what is the rock that Jesus speaks of? Number two, what does Jesus mean by this language of binding and loosing? And number three, how will the church prevail against the gates of hell? And hopefully we'll show that this all has in some way to do with church membership. That's the goal. So Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, our ears should perk up the same language, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or th- if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So what Jesus does here is outline the basic process of what we call church discipline. And the last stage of discipline within a church is to tell the situation to the entire church, it says. And if the unrepentant person does not ref- listen to even the church, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat that person like an outsider, like he doesn't belong. So Jesus assumes that this person that starts as a brother, right? Did you notice that in verse 15, if your brother sins against you? This person starts as a brother. But as they move through this process of addressing their sin, and if they refuse to repent, then by the end of this process, the one that was previously called a brother is now called a Gentile, a tax collector, no longer having the status of a brother, part of the family of God. We're going to speak more about church discipline in a few weeks, but the important thing to note for us now is this connection between verse 17 and 18, because it helps us understand what binding and loosing refers to. Because Jesus directly connects the church treating this unrepentant sinner as an outsider, as the way in which the church binds and looses. Did you see that? The process of 
going through this process of church discipline and ultimately making the decision that this person is no longer a brother but is now a Gentile and a tax collector, that is what Jesus means by binding and loosing. Jesus gives the church itself one responsibility, and that's to define the limits of its own membership. So if we go back to our passage in Matthew 16, we now see that the, ex- at the offensive attack of the church is expansion of Christ's kingdom, is admitting members into the church, and protecting Christ's kingdom by discipline, disciplining members. Matthew 18 is the reason why I believe the rock on which Jesus built his church cannot only be Peter. It can't only be the apostles because the responsibility for binding and loosing, for defining the limits of church membership is not given just to the apostles. It's not given just to Peter. Who is the final arbiter of whether this person truly belongs among this group or not? It's the church. And the remarkable part about this is Jesus is speaking at a time when Peter and all the other apostles are alive. Like, would the natural response be to just be like, well, Peter, what do you think? Can you determine whether this person is and should be a part of our church community? But Jesus says, no. Maybe first you go to an elder, someone you trust, bring it to two or three. But the final arbiter, the final judge is the congregation, the members of the church. In other words, the rock is the church, and every local church is made up of members who confess Jesus as the Christ is part of the rock. All those who confess Jesus as the Christ and share the confession of Peter are what constitute the rock on which Jesus will build his church. And part of advancing Christ's kingdom is by admitting and disciplining members. So to be a member of a local church is to be officially and publicly recognized as a Christian. And one of the great responsibilities that you have as a Christian, the authority that Jesus gives you, the keys to the kingdom, is this idea of identifying and affirming those who are a part of the church community. Which is why in the bylaws, we have set it up so that who admits members into the church? It's the church. It's the members of the church. And who is ultimately responsible for the process of church discipline? It is the church. So church membership, I believe, because of Jesus' words, is a necessary inference. Because it doesn't make any sense. Jesus' commands don't make any sense unless there is some idea of who belongs to this church. So even though there isn't a verse that says thou shalt be a member of a church, we really can't follow Jesus' commands unless we have something akin to what we understand today as church membership, an idea of who is a part of our body. So first, church membership, I believe, is biblical. It's part of Christ's commands. But church membership is also the primary context of Christian discipleship. Church membership is the primary context of what it means to follow after Jesus So in the New Testament, there are 59 commands that use the phrase one another. All over the New Testament, Jesus, as well as the apostles, they're always commanding Christians to treat one another in a certain way. One of the most famous, one of the greatest of these one another commands is found in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. It says this, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, my question for us this morning is, when our Lord Jesus commands us to love one another, who comes to your mind? Who are you primarily thinking of? Who are you seeking to love in order to obey Christ's command? There's this wonderful quote I want to share. It's a little long, but I think it's very uh, telling for what I'm describing. But it's from Dostoevsky. He wrote this novel called Brothers Karamazov. And he writes this. One of the characters says, I love humanity. Love humanity. But I can't help being surprised at myself. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love men in particular. I mean, separately as separate individuals. In my dreams, I'm very often passionately determined to save humanity, and I might quite likely have sacrificed my life for my fellow creatures if for some reason it has been suddenly demanded of me. And yet, I'm quite incapable of living with anyone in one room for two days. And I know that from experience. How the past couple days been. As anyone, as soon as anyone comes close to me, His personality begins to oppress my vanity and restrict my freedom. I'm capable of hating the best man in 24 hours. One, because he sits too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold in his head and keeps blowing his nose. But on the other hand, it invariably happened that the more I hated men individually, the more ardent became my love for humanity at large. Linus, you know Linus from Peanuts? He says something very similar. This is probably easy to remember. Linus says, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. I love mankind, people I can't stand. One more quote, because I think it's so great. It comes from C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is a book that talks about, um, it's written from the perspective of an older demon talking to his nephew demon about how to uh, best prevent or, you know, try to destroy the faith of people. But the older demon advises uh, his nephew. When the Christian gets to his pew and he looks around him to see that just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided, you want to lean into that. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes. The patient will then quite easily believe that their religion must somehow, therefore, be ridiculous. See, what all these quotes get at is what Jesus does not allow ourselves to do. Jesus does not allow us to consent ourselves with loving humanity theoretically in the abstract, like I'm a lover of all people, I'm a lover of mankind and humanity. What Jesus asks and commands you to do is to love flesh and blood people in the pews. People, as C.S. Lewis says, sing out of tune have boots that squeak, double chins, who wear odd clothes. These are the people that Jesus called you to love as he has loved us. You see, it's in the laboratory of church membership in which we learn to love, serve, and submit to one another. I would ask you to consider whether the primary context in which you seek to obey Jesus' commands to love one another as you've been loved by Christ is our church, Terrytown Christian Church. And this doesn't mean that you can't have any other Christian friends. 
This doesn't mean that you can't be a part of like any other Christian organizations of which there are many wonderful ones. But what it does is it recognizes that the kind of relationship that the Lord calls us to, relationships of commitment, sacrifice, even submission, Jesus calls us to submit to one another. These kinds of relationships are the kind of relationship that Jesus has loved us with. You see, we all intuitively know, I think, that the richest and most transformative, but also the most difficult, painful, and heartbreaking relationships that we have are the ones that we're most committed to. You only have to look of your, think of your natural families. You know, the families that you're birthed into, mother, father, brother, sister, aunts, uncle. Think of your families. Are they not the source of some of your greatest joy as well as some of your greatest pain? Doesn't every one of us have some painful relationship with a family member or some conflict between some members of the family? Where if it was anybody, where if it was someone outside of your family that you were having this conflict with or this was happening, you would have been gone a long time ago. But why do you stick with it? Why do you stick with them? Because they're family. There's a commitment. There's a bond. Or think of another family-like relationship, not your natural family, but think of marriage. Why is marriage such a fertile ground for the Lord's work of sanctification in your life? think in large parts because of the phrase until until death do us part as long as you're married and alive you're forced to work it out you don't have a choice there's no escape hatch you can't just bail at the first sign of trouble for those of you who are married did you ever come to this i mean obviously we know this to be true but did you ever come to realization that you're with this person in front of you for the rest of your life there's nothing you can do about it. But what does that resolution, what does that realization do? It strengthens your resolve, I think, hopefully, but also it increases your dependence upon the Lord because you realize, I can't do this on my own. You see, the commitment is in large part the secret sauce of marriage. And we all know this to be true. Despite our culture's best efforts to live otherwise, because what's very popular today is to try to get all the benefits of marriage without the commitment. Why get married when I can experience all the marriage-like benefits? Perhaps greater financial stability, emotional support, sexual intimacy. I can get all those things without making the marriage commitment. Because that's big and that's final. But those who try their best to convince themselves of this perspective fail to understand that the marital vows are what make marriage work. It's the commitment to stick with this other person no matter what the situation that allows marriage to be what it is. And it's no accident then that the New Testament uses language of family, uses the metaphor of marriage to describe relationships in the church because they're meant to have the same kind of commitment. Because Christian relationships don't work without commitment. And our Christian witness, Jesus said, is made visible and strengthened by a particular 
gathering of believers who take Jesus' commandment to love one another seriously, even and especially when it is hard. So that's why we have something that we wrote up and encouraged. So in the back now, there are copies of our new bylaws and our church covenant. And our church covenant is a document that was written up to express the commitment that we're making to one another as members of our church. If our statement of faith is what we believe, then our church covenant is how we live. In other words, how does what we believe influence and affect the way that we are committing to live with one another? See, local church membership, I believe, based on this church covenant, is one of the ways in which we fight against the individualism that is so rampant in our culture today. An individualism that is even present within Christian culture, right? Kind of what I was referring to before. My faith, my relationship with God. But actually, when you read the Bible, it never uses that kind of language. It's always our faith. It's always our relationship with God in the context of our relationships with one another. And that's why I believe church membership is so important, is so vital, because it is the way in which we follow and obey Christ's commands, like the command to love one another, to be committed to one another, even when it's hard. So as we, I'd like to end then with one of the most popular wedding passages, maybe it was what read at your wedding if you're married, Ephesians chapter 5, because it speaks of the mutual submission that husbands and wives are supposed to give to one another. Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her in order that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes that just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then Jesus goes on to say, or I'm sorry, Paul goes on to say, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. So reread it at weddings, because it gives this amazing vision of what a Christian marriage should look like, the self-sacrificial nature of a husband to love his wife. What Paul is saying is actually, that picture that we have That's just the symbol. That's the shadow. The true reality is Christ's love for his church. You see what Christ does? Christ loves the church. Christ gives himself up for the church. His desire is to present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it just as Christ does the church. So if that's what Jesus does to his church, and then he tells all of us, love one another as I have loved you, how then should that affect our posture toward Jesus' church, of which we were all members? In the same way that husbands are to love their wives, wives are to love their husbands, we are to love one another in a self-giving, sacrificial manner, because that's how Christ loved us, and that's how Christ loves his church. Christ loves us. He loves Terrytown Christian Church. He commands us to love one another as he has loved us. And if we love others as Christ has loved us, then that means that we too will love his church and we will love one another, building it up, working for its purity and its peace at all times and in all ways.
So Isaiah 40, verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Dearly Father, this morning we're confronted with the idea that you not only love us as individuals, but you love us as your church, a gathered body of individuals who are called to seek the good of one another and to love one another as Christ has loved us. We admit that we do so imperfectly, that we fall far short of the standard that Christ has set for us, yet we ask for your Holy Spirit to continue to guide us, to lead us, to grow us. We pray that in the process of adopting these new bylaws and church covenants, that we'd be strengthened in our faith, in our resolve to love one another, and that you would empower us by your Spirit to serve one another in the strength that you supply. May you give each one of us a fresh vision of how we might be participants within the church. We don't want to be a church in which 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people, but rather all the work is done by all the people. In order to do so, we admit, Lord, that we need your help. Be present among us. Lead us, guide us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.